0: The Startup Sensations podcast: First-hand accounts of the real stories behind the successes, challenges, and opportunities of starting and growing a startup company. Welcome to Startup Sensations from both sides of the pond, with Belent Osman
1: and Shelley Bays. And welcome back to another episode of the Startup Sensations podcast with me, Belent Tosman from just outside London here in the UK. And me, Shelley Bays, up on the north coast of California by the ocean. How lovely, Shelley. We have another really interesting episode today and it's all about investing. And it's, it's really from a point of view from an angel investor, but also an institutional investor. So I think today's conversation will be very interesting for all of the uh, entrepreneurs and startup founders that listen to the show, because there's a lot of very important information here uh, as to how to go about the fundraising process. And Shelley, you know this particular person quite well, don't you?
2: Well, I've, I've known Michael, Michael Blakey, for easily 10 plus years. First met him in London, As part of uh, an angel group, and he was there as an angel investor, and we'll hear more, I hope, about his experiences in that realm. Michael, interestingly, made the decision a number of years ago now to relocate to Singapore Mm -hmm. with the idea that there would be an interesting set of companies, different characteristics, maybe different valuations, that sort of thing, that he could access it will be interesting to catch up with him and find out if uh, all of that is coming to fruition the way he expected. But this is an experienced guy. And as you say, everything from angel investing through to what he has now is his own fund, Cocoon Capital. I think we're going to, we're going to enjoy talking to him very much.
1: Hello, Michael, and welcome to the Startup Sensations podcast. We're really excited to have you join us uh, on the show today.
0: Thank you very much for having me. Really excited. Am I right in thinking that we're in three different countries at the
1: moment? So Shelley's in California, and I'm just outside London. So a truly international show, this one. You know, you're a highly impressive and successful serial angel investor, and I know that you started at a very young age. And I'm just wondering if you could take yourself back, what actually motivated you to start this journey? And and also, I'm just intrigued to know, what was your appetite for risk at that very early age?
0: Well, I, I think it's like a lot of things in my life. It wasn't necessarily planned to actually happen the way it actually uh, did. So I became I get a full-time early stage investor back in 2000. And it was just meant to be something I was going to do for a couple of years. So I had returned from the U.S. where I'd been studying and I'd done a little startup and then I joined a tech startup, a corporate startup. And, um, you know, it was a dot-com boom uh, at that time. And um, I tried the corporate job, uh, realized totally not for me. And um, I was really intrigued by the Internet and and how I felt that it was going to change the world. But I didn't know anything about the space or I'm not a technologist myself. So... um, I thought what I would do is I would join a startup and I would also invest in startups and kind of like get an education that way before I would actually do a startup. So the idea was I would invest for two or three years um, and I would then come up with this amazing idea that was going to revolutionize the world, you know, and then 23 years later, I still find that I'm still investing in the startups who never got around to, to starting up a, a tech business myself. So I think uh, for me, it was an interesting, really interesting to start off with because I, you know, I was in my, well, how old was I? I was 25 when I started. Uh, I would walk into like angel networks I would meet everybody. You know, the traditional angel investor at that point in time was an ex or banker or a doctor in their mid to late 40s, early 50s. Uh, absolutely no clue about what they were investing in more of a traditional business person and then the entrepreneurs even that back at that time dot-com boom even then they were still older than me so a majority of them were still in their kind of 30s early 30s and what i quickly realized is that as much as i wanted to invest in the internet i couldn't actually afford to because A startup back in those days, you needed at least 5 million, if not 10 million quid or pounds, sorry. You didn't have like AWS or any of these other things. So I didn't actually make my first true kind of like digital internet kind of investment until about 2007. So I ended up investing in a lot of other really exciting companies that were, you know, startups, but nobody would touch them because they weren't anything to do with the internet. So my first investment I ever made was into a robotics company. And I did a telco and logistics. Um, and I got the bug from there.
2: So Michael, you know, there is this debate still out there between those that say one needs to specialize in a sector and be an absolute expert in the sector and those that say sector agnostic, it's the team, it's the CEO, it's the you know size of the market. What's your, I mean, and those are two extremes. but what's your take on that?
0: I mean, it's a good question. Uh, My view is that the people that you're backing should be experts in their field. What they're not normally experts in is actually how to build and scale a company. So where I bring the value, because I've always been very selective in my investments. So as an angel, I would only do about two deals a year. Uh, As a VC, we only do like uh, five deals a year. And our focus is more on supporting The founders post investment, Uh, actually helping to like scale, build, support them in all the areas that most founders, because if you're especially doing deep tech or even enterprise tech, which is more of my focus, they normally are much more on the product and the tech side. So they're experts in that field. But when you talk to them about branding, about building culture to build teams, to get product market fit, all of these things, that's where they really struggle. And I find it doesn't matter what sector you're in, the same basic theory to how you can support them and how they do it actually works. And the process, I think is an uh, angel, one of the mistakes I made very early on in my life is I try to do it all for them. So I'm like, okay, you wanna build a brand from scratch? So let, let me do this for them. And to be quite <laughs> honest, it was a bit of a a clusterfuck um, because they knew their business much better than anybody else, what they needed. And it, as soon as I stepped away, they were like, well, Michael did it, so we have absolutely no clue how to do it. Uh for me what it's all about is actually saying this is the framework this is how you think about it this is what you need to actually do they have to do the work themselves because if they don't they don't buy into it but it's that level of knowledge that they're missing so I feel that I can invest across the space sector it's so like any sector when it comes to like DJ I don't have to be a, a specialist in that area um, I'm more, much more about the people I can bring in I've got a very big network I can bring in people that can actually look into that and say, yes, this is what they're saying is true or not. And then I come in and say, do I actually believe these this is the right team to actually build and scale? Is this are these the people that that I, I can back and they'll actually they've got the the gumption, the vision, the hunger to actually really build something which is going not just gonna be a lifestyle business, but be kind of a, a rock star.
2: You know, it's interesting because what you're talking about in plain speak is due diligence in a way. Um, sounds boring but is vital so I'm curious because you know all successful and unsuccessful angel investors have made mistakes oh yeah and
1: apart from Michael of course apart from Michael I don't think Michael's made a mistake oh trust me I've got some doozies I've got absolute doozies
2: (laughs) so well I I was going to ask you two things one to share some of those doozy stories and what what you think when you go back and analyze what you might've done differently, what that was. And secondly, how much do you rely on networks or other people or, versus your own gut? So those are kind of two different parts of the question.
0: I'll answer the second one first, cause that, that's really easy. It's very much on my gut. So my initial reaction is always really important because it's about the people. Like, do I believe in, uh, you know, I've invested in 18 year olds. Um, as well as like 50 year old, kind of across the board. And, and a lot of the times that they're, they're like first time founders, they haven't done it. So, you know, to so one of my top performing companies in Singapore, two of the founders were undergrad students still at the university and graduated. Um, you know, you kind of look at them and like, how can you actually say? And I was like, they had the vision, they had the hunger, they, w- they wanted to learn. They knew they, there's a lot they didn't know. And one of the reasons they wanted to work with, with us rather than others is because they're like, okay, you're going to help support us and, and kind of like train us. It means sometimes you can make horrendous mistakes, and then, um, then the second thing is you when you when you have that belief that this is the right team, you then go and call up experts in the field, you go and talk to other people, and you you get them to give you input into what you're doing if it's an area that you don't know, and quite often you got to be very careful is that you don't ask it because people will sometimes say well. I'm, I'm an expert in this field and I, just, I hadn't thought of it, so it can't be that great. Or I could do it better myself. The normal quiet thing is, is yeah, it can be done, but I could do it much better than what they're doing. So one of the reasons I like deep tech and enterprise tech because it's very easy to identify, are they solving a problem? So is their solution a, a, a nice to have or a must have? I then bring in experts to say, do these people actually have the ability or what they're trying to do? Is it much different than what's already out there in the market? I, I then, and I'll change the name of that, uh, the, the company, yeah, yeah the failure uh, and right. what they do <laughs> the failure it's it's kind of embarrassing but I guess being British we always like talking about our failures more about our successes but it, it's probably the deal that I lost a lot of money on but it was it was my MBA of early stage investing there's many things I do differently now because of this and I think sometimes you know my grandfather always used to tell me if you've if you've met never if you've met a person who's never had a failure then you've met the person who's never taken a risk. So, I kind of live and breathe by that motto is that sometimes, you know, it's fine to make mistakes and, and, and screw up. You just don't make the same mistake twice. So, you got to learn from those mistakes. So, I invested in a company. Um, I I'll call it, I call it a, 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 like a, a green company. Let's call it the green company. Okay. Uh, if anybody is listening out there who knows me will know this company well because uh, it's, it's a well known story, but I made numerous mistakes on it. And I think a couple of the biggest ones were, Uh, I actually knew, uh, through a very close friend of mine, um, one of the global experts in this field. So somebody who didn't know, he knew everything about that. What he didn't know wasn't worth knowing. And I went and talked to him about what this company was doing. And he looked at me within five minutes and was like, Michael, you can't change the law of physics. (laughs) (laughs) The problem that I had, um, so I was obviously ignored that advice. was I'd already gone native on the deal. I'd fallen in love with the opportunity so much that I wasn't, and I spent so much time on it that I wasn't willing to walk away. And um, I was doing the deal with my brother and we both actually had the same we We both kind of decided that if this did work, if they could change the law of physics, <laughs> then God, this was going to be an amazing business. Not thinking, okay, like much better, smarter people than us have proven that you can't. And obviously what he said was true, because uh, we found that out very quickly after the investment. But then going forward, if I ever did a deal, um, I, I, in the UK I did a lot of investments, most of my investments with my brother. One of us would lead and the other one would kind of take a step back from the deal. So we wouldn't both work on the deal doing the due diligence. So the person who wasn't leading the deal would kind of act as de facto investment committee. So they would look at the clean facts. And then my job, so if I was leading the deal, my job was to go to my brother and say, this is the company, this is why I'm excited about it. And he would do the whole older brother thing. Let me play devil's advocate. So obviously, I wanted to strangle him at that point in time. But then he would. his job was to be a bit more cynical about the deal and actually make sure that I'd done all the work. And for him, because he hadn't spent any time on it, it was much easier for him to say, no, you know. And we couldn't do the deal unless... Both of us actually agree to it. And I think as an angel investor, one of the big mistakes is is that we sometimes fall in love with the opportunity and ignore all the red flags.
2: Yeah, it's like getting emotionally involved and you almost need someone else or another entity to say, here are the facts and, and balance
1: the two of them.
2: That's interesting.
1: So the two of you played kind of good cop, bad cop between the two of you. And um, you you put the founders through their paces and you challenge them. And to to what extent do you you give founders a hard time? To what extent do you really kind of make it difficult for them and put up high barriers so that if they were to climb those higher barriers, then of course, you could be impressed by that. But equally, perhaps they won't fully climb those barriers.
0: I would say I intentionally i'm in mean, certain meetings an absolute arsehole um if not me my well by now business partner one of my team as you said good cop bad cop is a good way of doing it and the main reason being is that you're investing in a company where we're investing at pre-seed seed so you know if you're lucky you get a decent return in eight years so you're going to have a long relationship and in theory founders are on their best behavior when they're raising money from but any startup even my most successful startups have gone through difficult times so you want to know how they respond and so when they're talking to you they're on the best behavior like they'll say oh yeah michael you're so super smart you know I'm really thinking that that's a moron but what i want to try and do is artificially put a difficult situation there because i want to see how they react when they're pushed when they're challenged do they basically shut down are they open to being challenged or do they like like fundamentally kind of give you that look it's Just give me your money and fuck off because we know everything. You don't know anything. So sometimes you have to bring that level of conflict into the conversation. And it's why a lot of like if you look at the VCs, sometimes they just have meetings for the sake of having meetings because they just want to get, you know, we're being asked sometimes to put in like a million dollars into a startup. We might have only met a few times. So every interaction that you have with that will tell you something about them. And for me, I don't want to work with founders who are just kind of, it's purely about the money. They don't need any help because if I look at the great founders on the whole, they're the people that actually milk those around them for everything they're worth because they would know that they, they have a knowledge, but the reason that they bring on investors is it's more than money, is that if there's a resource, if there's a connection, if there's something they can leverage, they will do that. And that's the kind of founder. But you sometimes have to force and needle the situation to get to that point, because otherwise they're gonna be, yeah, Michael, you're fantastic, you're brilliant, because they want your money.
2: I have have a funny question related to what you just said. So, you know, I look fairly superficially at so-and-so who is a serial entrepreneur, and I think, oh, that means good, because they've done it before, they know the ropes, and they've got knowledge, they've learned. Is there a tendency sometimes, however, for that serial entrepreneur to just know better and better how to develop the persona you just described. Let, let me just tell them what they want to hear. And I've gotten better and better at raising money, but not necessarily at running a company. Do you see that at all? In the UK, I
0: saw it a bit. In Singapore, in Southeast Asia, you're not so much because there's not many serial entrepreneurs out here. I remember when I first started. I had the very English attitude that if some if founder came to me and said, I, I've had two failed businesses and this is my third one, I'll be like, ah, no, don't want it. Don't want to end at your failure. Don't want to touch you with a bulge ball. I very quickly learned actually that those are some of the best founders out there. If they can answer one question, what did you learn from that failure, which will make this one more successful? It's like, I look at it as somebody else has paid for their MBA, but. Are they people that actually learn? So if you get the very kind of shallow answer, oh, you know, I, I picked the wrong founder and that's it, or kind of it was just bad timing or something, then for me, it's not somebody who's actually sat back and actually thought, okay, yes, I might've picked the wrong founder, but what is the right founder? Why was it wrong? Could I have done anything differently? Could I have changed it out? Because for me, you know, as I said, everybody's got failures of how can you learn from them? So when I come to like talking about like people who are seriously uh, or have had a number of successful uh, startups, sometimes the risk is they think if it's worked once, it will work exactly the same again, and they get too caught up in okay, we know that this is this is our kind of process. Now, if it's exactly the same business, then maybe that would work, but quite often they're trying to do something in a new field, and then you kind of see well, they they're too blinkered in their approach. They're not actually thinking there and also sometimes the hunger so one of the things i always look for how many of their team have joined them on their journeys one of the big telltale signs of a great leader is who are their first hires i always think the founders that have the ability to hire people at at the start that they should never be able to afford or attract to their company they tend to be the better ones Um, i had a company i invested in about a year and a half ago It was a really, really big struggle for me because it was during COVID and she was based in Indonesia and I didn't, I couldn't meet her in person. So for me, who's very much a people person, I want to sit in the room and have a conversation, get to really know them and, and Zoom calls, you can never really do that. And so I was like, okay, I want to interview your whole team. So I kind of sat down, I had the first one, I was like, how long have you, have you known the founder? I've known them for four years, I used to work. Oh, so you... You worked with them, yeah. When when we worked in this big corporate had a very well-paying job, when they started the new business, I quit it (laughs) and I joined for a much lower salary, much higher risk. I was like, wow, that's impressive. Wow. And they said, but we all did that. What do you mean you all did that? So her whole team left that safe job in the middle of COVID and went with their founder to do a startup. Obviously, a lot lower salary, much higher risk. I was like, I don't really actually need to talk to anybody else. I was like, where do I sign? <laughs> and it's it's one of the the best investments, in my opinion, I've ever made in terms of better traction, what's, what they've achieved and everything else. And for me, it was just, I could talk to her for hours and never get to the, the level of comfort that I can that people, and these are not well-paid people. These are not people, if, if it went wrong, their families would struggle. But they had this belief in what the founder was doing and in her capabilities that they were willing to take that risk. And for me, that just says more than any, any other kind of due diligence, reference checks or anything else that I could do.
2: No, absolutely. So, so following up on that, how did you end up in Singapore in terms of making this jump from, you know, London, arguably a tech hub, uh, lots of stuff going on. And you made this decision when, I, I can't remember when you moved to Singapore, but when and why?
0: Moved in 2013. Okay. Uh, it depends who you believe is the reason why. Uh, <laughs> my my version is I've been in I've been doing the same thing for 13 years and I absolutely love it. I, I'm part of AA, you know, Angels Anonymous. But when I first started, I was doing something which was different. There's not many kind of full time angel investors that were really kind of doing what what I was doing. And I felt I was making a difference. And the founders were this hungry, really wanted to to go out there and, and make a big difference. And 13 years later, I felt it was all a bit too easy. Like I had the brand, I had the deal flow coming. I knew pretty much, I knew most of the major players. And I also suddenly came to the realization that if I stopped, nobody would blink an eyelid. (laughs) And, and, you know, when you think about angel investors, there's normally there's relatively quite high turnover. They come in big for three years and they disappear. So, and I've been to the, I lived in the US, I studied out there. And actually that's where I got a lot of my gumption of just do it. Don't worry about failure. Just go and try. And if you fail, pick yourself up and get going. So at that point in time, one of my portfolio companies were like, "I want, we want to expand to Asia. And we're either thinking Singapore or Hong Kong. Michael, do you know anybody that can help us? And I was like, actually, no, I don't really know anybody does because everybody just wanted that point in time to move to the US. So I was like, oh, why don't I go out and find out? I was like, (laughs) I'll just head out there, you know, help you get set up, make some introductions. And, you know, and the plan was to come out here for a year, maybe two years. And I bring my then wife and and my first kid. And, you know, uh, I think you know, my brother, Simon, his view on the whole thing was I I just had my first kid. So I was having a midlife crisis, (laughs) probably, probably maybe a little bit right. But so I came out here and so (laughs) Singapore, uh, even even now is probably 10 15 years behind the UK, which is obviously still behind where Silicon Valley and and the such is. But the opportunity here is like you've got more people, you know, it's larger than Europe and the US and it's greenfield. There's so many opportunities out here. Um, There's very few dominant players out here and how they work, how they function is very, very different. So even when you see big companies like some of the big US like Stripe or Uber try and come here, They've quite often been beaten by a local, massively underfunded competitor. And then those competitors have kind of moved out. And I think you've kind of seen it a bit in like in Nasdaq, you've seen some of these companies begin to come through. And I think we're just at the tip of the iceberg in terms of what's happening here. So you've seen like the property gurus, C, Grab, all of these companies now coming through. And they're they're just the first wave. I, I think in terms of the enterprise and the deep tech. That, that's going to be coming and, and there's still a few years to go before it will happen but I feel like I'm on the kind of tilt of that wave it's a bit like the world west you know I've got an investment in Myanmar you know and having a call with the founder whilst bombs and gunfire going on on the out, out, outside the the office during the coup we had an employee uh, based in Myanmar as well and you know we were on the phone with her and there was a huge explosion and we couldn't contact her for like two days and we were like Calling around everywhere, and then she turns up at the office of our portfolio company, and just a bomb had exploded in, uh, down the end of her street, and just knocked out all the electricity.
2: Oh, jeez! Well, she mm. could be in she could be in California and have the storms down the redwood trees, and you lose electricity. So I guess it could happen anywhere.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
2: so you're going to stay?
0: I think I'm going to stay. Yeah, for the foreseeable future.
1: Michael, can I just uh, ask you about your frustrations? uh what frustrates you most about what you do and what are the key frustrations that you experience from your own portfolio investment company, especially the founders that you've already put faith in? What examples can you give us about those two types of frustrations?
0: I think a frustration, I, have it, I had it a lot more when I, in the early days than I would necessarily say today, but uh, in the early days when I was investing, every single deck finished the same way the last slide was in three years we will do a trade sale or an ipo that was like de facto ever the last slide you know
1: with charts going up exactly you know, the like hockey that. sticks yeah. it's kind of all, all of that yeah. i mean I, luckily yeah. I haven't
0: seen that for years but it always takes a lot longer than you expect the failures happen quickly so you normally the you know when you, you that you've lost your money in like the first 18 months to 24 months but it takes time to really grow and scale a large business and it's like a bit of like a a roller coaster but you know the first investment i ever made was into that robotics company it took me like 16 years before i had a successful exit and if i look at a lot of my big exits it's kind of like the 10 years so you're kind of and this is where a lot of i think angels run into this problem is you start investing you get really excited about it and you kind of invest then all you see is failures and you kind of like, oh my god, there's got to be easier ways of making money, or this is too difficult, or. But the reality is, quite often, through those failures, you learn what your investment criteria are as an angel. Because it's all everybody's different in terms of how they value and make, and you need to adapt it and learn and learn from your mistakes. But it takes time before you have those, and when you do have a winner, it pays for everything else. So, uh, for me, I think the frustration is always I would I would love to. I, you know i've i've got four kids as well so i see the money going out all the time and i was just like i would love it to more, coming back in and sometimes you have to wait a couple of years before you have that big exit come in luckily now i've been doing it for so long i've got a nice big portfolio so i'm i'm hoping that i'll get like one successful exit a year but it's still kind of like okay i've got you know now i've got university fees i've got kids fees i've got all these damn things that's like a little bit of money to come in you know in the near future and you've got no control over it
1: and what sort of annoys you most out of uh, kind of founders and what they say to you, perhaps in regular review meetings or or in their reporting? What, what what what's kind of the most annoying trait? Let's say I would. It's a difficult one, but I would say probably
0: communication
1: or the lack of it.
0: Or the lack of it, and it comes round down to trust. And I think especially more angels than and, and I'm, I'm both an angel and VC, so it, it's, um, but. Sometimes founders don't want to say when they're having troubles until it's too late. So if you're taking my money, it fundamentally believes that you you trust me and that you believe that I believe in you and I want you to be successful, I, you know, because I want to make money. I don't. If you're not successful, I'm not going to make money. So I'm never going to do anything to fundamentally harm the business. But I also understand that you're a startup, so nothing goes according to plan. And there's also a lot of things you don't know. So tell me as soon as you know or even think there might be a problem, come and ask for help use the resources that that are available to you don't wait until it's too late that nobody can actually help you that that whole trust and communication is really important you also have the problem sometimes when it's just the investor So if i just said this to entrepreneurs like if somebody's put money into you they can probably put more money later on and there's always a time when the company needs more money so getting some money from somebody and then not talking them to for them for like 14 months and then ringing them up and saying hey we're doing our next round or we have to do like a bridge round or something. The likelihood of them though that investor uh in putting more money in is pretty low unless you're killing it. Um but what they they will probably if you communicate with them even if it's every I normally tell my founders like every couple of months just do kind of an investor update both the good and the bad. Yeah. And always have an ask. And for those ones which you know can be really useful going forward, try and have a coffee with them like once a quarter, just to give them face time, keep them in the loop of what's going on. And it will massively increase your chance of them doubling down at you in the next round, even if it is a bridge round if things aren't going particularly well. But it's, you know, founders always say, but Mike, we've got so much on. And I'm like, yeah, but you're, you, if your company doesn't have any money, there is no company.
2: Don't you think it's a little bit also about... I, as the founder, have portrayed I'm capable, I'm confident, I'm on top of things. And there's a little element of when you have to go to somebody and say, oh, this isn't working out quite right, that's that's a little bit of saying I wasn't quite as perfect as I portrayed, and this sort of hidden fear that maybe somebody'll decide I need to be replaced.
0: I think so. But The last part I know is always a big fear of founders, uh, and I can answer that one, but I'll answer your first one. I always say there's a thin line between confidence and arrogance. And I want to invest in somebody who's confident, not arrogant. Somebody who is confident is somebody that firmly 100% believes in what they're doing, but also has the ability to ask for help when they need it, or if somebody has a better idea than them, to have the ability to adapt. Somebody who's arrogant is just like, I know everything, I don't need anybody else. And you might be able to add one or two people, but fundamentally, there's there's no most founders need help, need support, have key people, and have had help throughout their career. So I, I actually look at it another way. For those founders who say, look, Michael, we're really good at X. We need help with Y. We can't afford to hire like a CFO or whatever it is. So can you just help me on it? I'll actually respect them more. And also, it's less likely that I'm going to get surprised. I think where... I get worried is if a founder comes to me and says, Michael, I've got no idea how to actually scale this business. Then I would get worried. I would much prefer them to say, this is my idea and for me to say, well, actually these are better ways. But if you're kind of going there and say, I just don't know how to do this. Like I've got to do this, but how do I, you know, how do I commercialize what I've built? That's a different thing. But if you come to me and say, hey, Michael, we've got this, this is the plan. It's not quite working. We're thinking of tinkering with this. I can then sit down and say, well, have you thought of this? Or uh-huh, we're not uh-huh. we can't, we know we need a CFO because we're scaling so fast and we've got issues with, you know, our receipts and everything else. And I'm like, okay, I can help you with that. Or this is what you need to actually think about. So for me, the confidence is, is again coming back to always the point of leverage all the resources that you've got around you. And investors are normally successful businessmen. Who actually have resources, but they might not know the tech, they might not know your business inside out, but they've probably got a network of people, they've probably got you know knowledge that can actually support your business if you just ask them.
2: That's a really good point. But I'm interested because you've lived and worked in the US, you've lived and worked in the UK, you've lived and worked in Singapore. What are the big differences if somebody's looking at those kinds of markets in terms of being an entrepreneur or an investor for that matter?
0: I would say like my time in the US, people are much bigger risk takers and much better at selling themselves. If you're talking to an American, I'm generalizing here.
2: I won't take offense. <laughs>
0: but you know, this is true. We're the greatest, we're the best and we're happy to talk about ourselves. If you talk to an Englishman, we don't like talking about ourselves and if we have any successes, because we were lucky. And if you come to Singapore, they just don't like talking about themselves. So, I mean, it's, I, I don't know how many times we've literally, even if they have a team slide they just skip over it but like they don't even talk about it at all <laughs> and the, the, the thing is is that you've got to look at like southeast asia in in two pots. you've got singapore and you've got everywhere else in singapore a lot of the founders are like they'll do it young and if it doesn't work out then they'll do what their parents tell them which is go into being a doctor a lawyer or or, or something a bit more stable but they're allowed to have that go and some of them are very successful and especially those that have spent more time abroad if you go to kind of outside, if you go to like Indonesia and what they've had to work incredibly, like that much harder and sometimes their view on the world is still relatively limited. Yeah. yeah. See, I, I didn't realize as a growing up, how lucky I was, you know, I went to multiple countries, you know, I lived in Kent, so I would just go to folks and hop on a ferry and like 40 minutes later be in France. And I didn't think that was anything abnormal that even as a 10 year old, I would do that with my mate. And then I was going to somewhere, and i meet people that, you know, when I was in the U.S., have never really been outside.
2: Outside their state. Yeah. <laughs>
0: but but then you look at, like, America in terms of tech scene, like, you can be a global business and never really leave America. That's true. If you come to, like, Thailand or Vietnam, they're big countries, but they're still limited in their size. And a lot of people haven't had that global exposure just to the knowledge and the learnings. And even a lot of the stuff that they find on the internet, you know, English is not their first language. So I, I quite often, the access to knowledge and to information and to networks in America, I think you very much take it for granted. And one of the things I loved about America is how friendly and open and, and sharing everybody was, was with the information and their their stories and everything else. In the UK, it was like that, but still up to a limit, there was still a bit of caution around it. If you come to, like, even if they wanted to in Asia, they just don't have that access. I think it was 2003, somebody was telling me, there's only 500,000 people on the internet out of like 600 million. I mean, it's changed dramatically then, but they've gone through growth very fast. But majority of the founders here are still first-time founders. I would say the VC kind of scene only really started around like 2011. And that people are reading stuff that's going on in Silicon Valley and then trying to relate it to a company that's based in Ho Chi Minh you're going to run into troubles so in america and even the uk just be grateful that there is all of this knowledge that as a, even as a young founder or as a first-time founder you've got that access to the knowledge which will help Kind of give you that 101 basic knowledge to actually start a business
2: except that english isn't our first language
0: i'm not don't even get me started <laughs> Shelly. don't even get me started <laughs>
2: michael is a podcaster too what's your podcast called michael again
0: it's called the unreasonable podcast it's got visual harnell from 500 global and uh, he and go from open space ventures and it's just us chewing the fat about the investment scene uh, in southeast asia so if anybody's willing to talk uh listen to it feel free it's just a bit of fun
2: i've listened it's it's really fun
1: i like the bit when you wind people up so we, we've not managed to do that on this show yeah. so far but uh next time uh, i know michael you get wound up by some of your colleagues but next time, yeah, next, time. next time when you come time. back oh, yeah. up. <laughs> absolutely well look thank you very very much and uh, it's been great meeting you my pleasure Well, Shelley, that was a really interesting and enjoyable conversation with Michael. He's a great character, isn't he? Uh, His personality, I thought, shone through. What did you think?
2: Absolutely. Well, he is a real character and highly intelligent and experienced as an investor. So he's friendly, he's approachable, but uh, don't get him wrong. He's very serious and very capable. And what brought that home to me in part was his discussion of some of the mistakes. He's very successful in investor, and yet is willing to openly say, you know, I've made mistakes. In fact, I think he says at one point, mistakes are my MBA yeah uh, in learning about investing yeah um, and I think the point is so important that not that you make the mistake but that you learn from the mistake yes and you take those learnings and apply them going forward and the concept which I've seen a lot in angel investors the idea that your emotions, Get ahead of you that you fall in love with a company and you fall in love with maybe the founder, and Hmm. you are then blinded a little bit. So, you know, that whole concept of mistakes, how to avoid them and how to learn from them, always to me, a real important takeaway.
1: Well, one particular part was a mistake that I made, and that was that I wasn't very good at communicating with my initial investors. I didn't keep them. Updated with really what was going on in the business. And I didn't feel at the time wrongly that that I could go to them and ask for advice and maybe just share some concerns that I had or some things that perhaps hadn't gone as well as I would have hoped. Uh, So I think what Michael said, it's really important to, to create that relationship, that level of empathy, that level of connection, especially with your angel investors, your high net worth individuals, who, of course, he rightly said, would be in a position to follow on the investment in the future. And it'd be easier than to ask for perhaps more money if you've kept that relationship going and that free flow of information. And it's kind of sharing the good, the bad, and a little bit of ugly at times. I would encourage anyone listening to the podcast really to have that mindset, especially with your larger and more influential investors that you might have on the books.
2: Well, and your your network. Absolutely. You know, and I I think Michael was clear about this. It's not that you go to your investors or your network and say, how do I do this? What do I do next? Uh, You know, you go and you say, here's my plan. Let me get input on it. So it is a partnership. You know, it's interesting if you think about from an investor standpoint, again, this concept of not being blinded by the superficialities about a particular project, but really going in and looking carefully and what he Reiterated was it's all about can the team implement? Yeah, it's not about is this the most wonderful piece of whatever out there? It's can the team implement? It does it make sense? It, you know all those pragmatic questions. He gave the example of assessing uh, some companies with uh, his brother, who's his partner in many ways in the fund, etc. And uh, playing good cop, bad cop. Yes. And really trying to get to the bottom of, of, can this team bring this to fruition? So that, again, was another important takeaway for me.
0: Thanks for listening to Startup Sensations. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform so you never miss an episode get in touch with us. Email hello at startupsensations.com.
1: Well, that's it for another episode of the Startup Sensations podcast. Don't forget to follow us on social media at Startup Sensations. And as they say in Singapore, goodbye.
2: Bye.